the Limestone Coasts. The Listener Exclusive. G'day, it's Ewan. Welcome to a brand new ep of the week that was, where we look back at what has happened in the news in the Limestone Coast. Limestone Coasters, it's been an interesting week in the world of footy. I'm going to catch up with one of the representatives from the SANFL to talk all about it. Jane Quillman is going to talk about the assisted dying laws that come into effect in January next year. And we get to catch up with Peter Malinowskis, the Premier of South Australia. He is in the Limestone Coast today, in fact. Also, the budget for 2022 was handed down and Tony Passon is going to talk about it. Here is a man who is not happy with the budget for 2022. We're going to find out more in the next 20 minutes. Let's get things underway. Let's talk SANFL. Let's talk Western Border, Mid-Southeast and KNTFL. The state's National Football League has denied Casterton Sanford Footy Club's request to move from the Western Border Football League to the Mid-Southeastern Football League. Members of Casterton Sanford voted in August to apply for the transfer. The SANFL says the decision to deny the application takes into consideration the wide-ranging impact of football across the entire southeast region. Southeast League transfer request. SANFL have made a decision in regards to Casterton Sanford Footy Club joining the Mid-Southeast next year. I have got on the line from the SANFL. Lisa joining me. She is the SANFL Head of Community Football. Lisa, good morning. Good morning, Ewan. How are you going? Good. Lisa, press release went out yesterday. What has happened? Well, the decision's been made to deny the Caston Sanford transfer request to go from Western Border to Mid-Southeast Football League, but there is a huge but in that. Uh, and the but is that we will be working towards implementing change in the region by season 2024, if not earlier, where local stakeholders can come up with other options. So we've spent an enormous amount of time down there. There's two staff based there, plus uh, myself and our country footy manager, Sean Ford, who I'm going to say basically moved down there for the last six months, mm. has been working with stakeholders down there in football netball to try and come up with options. Um, Casted and pulled the trigger and good on them for doing that. And they, you know, I'd, I've actually said to them it's courageous that they've put everyone on notice. So the buddies will be moving to change in 2024. And the other recommendation is that where an application was made again next year for 2024, that that would be accepted. So basically there's, there's an opportunity there for stakeholders now to understand that change is coming and get on board and be part of the working group to actually make that change so it's the betterment of everyone. Um, we can't continue to go on, you and with the fact that we've got declining junior numbers, we've got declining population in certain areas, and football is challenged in the region, and this has been, we've been looking at this, well, Sample's been looking at this with local stakeholders for well over 10 years now, so there's report after report after report. Um, and yet there's some growth there definitely in the Mount Gambier region, but other areas are struggling. So we've got to find a pathway through and I'll I'll talk to the fact that the Mallee Football League, the clubs there realised that early on in the piece this year and two clubs started talking mergers and now we're actually going to, unfortunately the dissolution of the Mallee Football League is going to happen but when you talk to those clubs about reinvigoration, talking mergers, moving the RMFL or moving over to the new Murray Valley Football Netball League, they're completely invigorated and positive about their future. 
that's what I'd like to see happen for the South East, but the problem is getting everyone in the boat at the moment. Lisa, obviously change has got to happen. Obviously change is hard. And the 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 takeaway I'm, I'm presuming is that there might be some mergers in the Limestone Coast and there has got to be a, a lot of upheaval, even though there's a lot of rivalry between uh, the three local leads in the, in the Limestone Coast. Um, but everybody, as you say, needs to get on board and, and work towards 2024, where we are going to see whether we like it or not, a change to footy in the region. Well, I think, look, I'm not using the word merger. I'm just saying there's options there. The clubs are struggling and they're telling us they're struggling. They've said that in survey work. They've said that off the record. Um, Sometimes there's fear around sticking their neck out and saying that. It's interesting. It's actually the junior bodies and netball in particular that are pretty keen on making the changes. Um, I understand the history and the tradition. I get all that. You know, I've been in footy for well over 30 years now. I understand how much that pulls the heartstrings. But for me, are you better off looking at options and trying to find solutions rather than sticking your head in the sand? And we've had clubs say to us, well, the local school went from 40 kids and we're down to about 10 and, you know, we don't really have any juniors, but we're okay. Are you, though? Well, that's the question. Are you? How much do you just keep battling along with that? Mm. And is that the right outcome for those kids that are still there? So we've got to come up with... The locals have to come up with options, but yeah, either way, there will be change coming in 2024. So the next step for us will be to um, actually look for formal nominations for a working party. And we want people who are innovative, who are solution focused, who are willing to think outside the box, who are good with stakeholder engagement and talking to people um, and are committed to finding a pathway through. And that's got to be everything. It's not this is about juniors, but it's also about, well, what's the offering from Western Border? What's happening with apps? What's happening with player payments? What's happening with fixturing to try and make this work? So we've done, we've got options presented. Um, there's been a lot of work that's gone into it, but now it's about everyone's got to bring come into the room, I suppose. So whilst we've had different stakeholder forums and we had working groups earlier this year, um, we didn't push it so much. It was more around, okay, well, can we create the collaboration to get the change? That hasn't happened. Claston pulled the trigger. Now everyone's on notice. Lisa, something has to change. Change is coming to footy in the Limestone Coast. And as you say, everybody is on notice. It's been great to talk to you this morning. Please keep in touch. Um, footy, obviously, everybody's passionate about it in the Limestone Coast. Uh, keep us up to date with what takes place over the course of the next 12 months, all right? Thanks, you, and appreciate the chat today. The Treasurer believes his first federal budget is responsible and addresses cost of living pressures. There's a $42 billion improvement for the bottom line, while it includes cheaper childcare, an expanded paid parental leave scheme and a plan to build a million new homes over five years. It also predicts higher inflation and unemployment. In SA, Labor's promised NBN upgrades. 120,000 households and businesses in Mount Gambier, Adelaide and Renmark are in for better connections. That's worth about $2.4 billion. Budget 2022, it was handed down. A man who knows more about it than I do is Tony Passon, the member for Barker. Good morning, mate. Morning, Ewan. Hey, Tony, what was in the budget for Limestone Coasters? Uh, Very little, to be honest. I mean, ultimately, this budget... Ewan is a budget um, that does very little to assist your listeners' family budgets. We went into an election campaign where we had the Australian Labor Party um, telling the Australian people if elected they would address the cost of living pressures, they would push up real wages and they would push down electricity costs. And last night 
uh, in the federal budget, the reality is they conceded defeat on all fronts. Um, they confirmed that cost of living pressures uh, are here to stay and that they weren't prepared to do anything to address them. Uh, real wage uh, growth um, is not projected until 2024, so that is despite people getting pay increases, prices will uh, be expected to increase faster uh, than wage growth, meaning that in real terms people wages going backwards. And electricity costs, this was the big kicker, um, a budget includes assumptions and that's the best available intelligence that the federal government has. And the budget included an assumption that electricity costs over the course of the next 24 months, two years, are set to increase by 50%. So your listeners out there, the bad news for them is if they received an electricity bill today, uh, then within two years that bill will be 50% more. Uh, and in fact, uh, our estimate is between today and Christmas, the average Australian family uh, will be $2,000 worse off. Um, we, we went into this budget um, hoping for cost of living relief, hoping to see the measures that the government would use to address the real pressures that are out there in community, uh, and last night we got nothing of that. Tony, you're now in opposition. How mm. do you combat what is going on across Australia at the moment with the cost of living pressures, and how do you put pressure on the government to make changes to make it better for all of us? Well, we hold them to account to be honest. I mean, uh, they, 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 they played a big game prior to the election and said that they would address all these issues and, um, and we need to remind them of the commitments they made to the Australian people. On electricity costs, they said electricity costs would be $275 cheaper under them as compared to a coalition government and they've now conceded that electricity costs next year go up by 30% and the following year by uh, a further um, 20%. I mean, my focus, Ewan, as Assistant um, Shadow Minister for Infrastructure is to ensure that we keep and continue to see infrastructure spends uh, in the regions. Uh, and all I could find by way of new funding was funding for the Augusta, Dukes and Sturt Highways, um, uh, $400 million or so. And I thought, well, I suppose that's not too bad. And then I read the fine print. The fine print said that money will be expended over, wait for it, 10 years. So potentially the only new money we had for South Australia was 400 odd million dollars uh, for infrastructure on those roads, which could be spent in 2033 if the government wished. And going to bed a little annoyed by that, I woke up to read... Uh, Minister King's press release. Now, Minister King is the Minister for Infrastructure and Regional Development, and this is in relation to her press release, which says, honouring our commitment to regional Australia. So I thought, well, there's got to be something in there for the southeast and regional Australia. So uh, the press release reads, the budget also funds a number of commitments for community infrastructure in regional Australia. I scrolled down for the section that says South Australia. For South Australia, there are projects including $10 million towards the next stage of the City of Holdfast Bay's Jetty Road Master Plan and $6 million for the City of Marion. I think I'd better pop round to the Minister's office this morning <laughs> and tell her that Glenelg um, and Marion are not in regional South Australia. Um, maybe she meant Mount Gambier. I don't know. Tony, are there any winners in the budget for 2022? Uh, the unions do pretty well, to be honest. 
Um, no, look, um, let's be clear. Um, we knew going into the last federal election that Australia was facing some real challenges, and we were honest with the Australian people in the lead-up to that election. Um, we scratched our heads during the election campaign thinking, well, they obviously know something we don't if they're promising to address cost of living pressures, they're promising to drive up real wage growth and drive down electricity costs in the circumstances. Um, but last night, I think, ultimately, you know, a very excited Australian Labor Party that campaigned, you know, full of um, uh, rainbows and fairy floss, um, realised that, you know, on advice from... Um, senior officials that the reality is far worse than that and they're not going to be able to achieve those targets and I remember at election time we got a little grief Ewan for campaigning with a slogan that said it won't be easy under Albanese and um, you know as I said earlier two thousand dollars worse off every household before Christmas um, that's proof positive now Labor are out there spruiking um, cheaper childcare cheaper medicines um, all of which is great, except, again, when you look at the detail, and that's what budgets should be about, they don't start till 2023. So cheaper childcare and cheaper medicines uh, are, are next year. Uh, they're modest in terms of the savings, but the real uh, increases in cost of living are this year. And I was saying to a mate, feel like this is a bit like the free beer budget. And he said, what do you mean? I said, you know those signs that say free beer tomorrow? You know, there's cheaper... There's cost of living relief coming, uh, but it's tomorrow. And then I fear that we'll get to tomorrow and then the publican will say, mate, the sign still says tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll see how we go, but um, I'm really concerned for Australian families who were perhaps holding some hope that this budget might address the number one issue playing out in Australia at the moment, and that's cost of living pressures. Tony, always good to have a chat. Thanks for your time, mate. Thanks, Sean. Cheers, mate. A local advocate says there needs to be more information going out to regional communities in the lead-up to the state's new Voluntary Assisted Dying Act. This will come into effect from early next year, allowing people with a terminal illness a choice at the end of life. But Jane Qualman says there needs to be more transparency and information before then to avoid any misinformation. And she says the Limestone Coast diet GP shortage isn't helping things either. Jane Quillman, she is an advocate for the assisted dying laws that are about to come in in South Australia. She has been very vocal on this point over the course of the last couple of years. And I have got to talk to her over a a number of occasions about the issue. She joins me for a chat this morning. Jane, g'day. G'day. How you going, Ewan? Yeah, good. Now, Jane... We're under 99 days until the voluntary assisted dying laws come into effect and uh, the government has been spruiking it this week. What is your take? Well, it is so welcome to hear from the government. Um, We've been feeling both patients, advocates um, and health professionals that I've talked to have felt a bit like mushrooms. We haven't heard a lot, seen a lot. Um, and it really worried me when I was talking to a couple of professionals in Adelaide, uh, Flinders, when they were asking me about the voluntary assisted dying laws because they were finding it very difficult to find out about training or information. And I found that a bit concerning. And then I started having a look and it was very difficult to find out anything tangible that you could say, oh, well, it's definitely happening on this date and rah, rah, rah. 
So to hear from the government this week, from Minister Picton and the Premier, um, is so welcomed. Jane, why is it important to have assisted dying laws, not only here in South Australia, but right the way across the country? It's important to have choice at your end of life. We have um, palliative care and more money's being put into palliative care and training palliative care nurses. But for a, a person with a terminal illness, the illness can become intolerable at their end of life and it can become, in, it, it's incurable because it's terminal. And um, a person to have choice and peace and dignity at their end of life is very important. Now, people can choose any way to take whichever pathway for their end of life, whether it be the, the traditional way or whether they say, no, I will have the medication and I will be with my family and end this before the illness really um, decimates my body mm. and my mind. And so it's good to have choice. And um, that's what we've been fighting for. We got the bill in and now we're fighting and well, we don't have to fight as much now, but we are really pushing that the 31st of January, that to have that legal choice um, will be so comforting for so many people. Now, Jane, for people leading up to that January 31st uh, begin date, uh, are there steps in place that people can uh, get the ball rolling if this is something that they choose to do? Not at the moment. You can't actually start the process till the 31st of January. And so, but after the, well, from the 31st of January, yes, there is. That the a person who is 18 years and over, um, an Aussie citizen or a permanent resident and has lived in South Australia for at least 12 months at the time of making their first request, can go to their doctor and bring up the conversation. Now, part of our bill is that uh, there's a no coercion um, clause in there, yeah. which means that the patient must bring up the conversation first to their doctor. So as of the 31st of January, which is the date that the government has set for the implementation process at the moment, hoping it's sooner, but at the moment it's 31st of January. Um, so from that date, a terminally ill patient that meets the criteria where their medical condition is incurable, advanced or progressive and will cause death within six months or it's neurodegenerative which will cause death within 12 months, they can go to their doctor and start that process. And it's um, uh, six steps but it's longer than that. It, there's, I mean there's 70 amendments in the bill so there's there's quite a uh, quite a process to go through once you go from one doctor to another, um, to a specialist, and there's waiting periods between all of that. So it's not an instant thing. And Jane, is there is there anywhere people can go for for extra advice on top of what we've talked about today? Yes, there is a website. Uh, SA Health have developed a web and a, um, implementation task force have developed a website and it is www.sahealth.sa.gov.au forward slash 
VAD. And in that, oh, I had a look yesterday and it's got um, frequently asked questions. It's got about the criteria, who's eligible, and you can ask questions uh, through that. There are going to be, uh, I'm under the understanding there's going to be a conference coming up that people can register for and that will be through um, uh, I believe like a webinar type thing mm. and also you can join a mailing list and that one is uh, through health.voluntaryassistedying at sa.gov.au with the subject line join mailing list and each of the words have got capital letters so <laughs> yeah it's not not easy to no. remember but but you can join a mailing list and that way you can be kept informed on what's going on with voluntary assisted dying Jane, the government have uh, have put down the 31st of January as the date that voluntary assisted dying starts in the state of South Australia. It will be great news for an awful lot of people. It will be terrible news that we have to wait till that January 31st marker for a lot of people who are who are suffering with a terminal illness at the moment. As always, it has been great to talk to you about the issue and to give people a little bit more information on how they can uh, start a conversation, not only with their doctor, but with their family as well. Thanks for joining us this morning. No worries, Ewan. Thank you for having me. Peter Malinowskis is doubling down on his council merger plebiscite, calling it the ultimate consultation. He's described it as a consultation about whether or not there will be a consultation, and he doesn't know how much more consultation people want. The Premier says the idea to hold a vote on whether the government should look into merging the City of Mount Gambia and the District Council of Grant came from Country Cabinet earlier this year. He says peculiarities of how the two councils work together is an issue that resurfaces often with residents. I've got the Premier on the line. Peter Malinowskis, good morning. Good morning, Ewan, and good morning to your listeners. Peter, you are going to be in the Limestone Coast. What brings you down to our part of the world? Well, I've committed, Ewan, to making sure I've got my feet on the ground in, in the beautiful Limestone Coast on a frequent basis. So I've been planning to come back down again for, for a while, but, but there's a bit happening in the local community on Friday. I'm I've got the opportunity to have uh, lunch at the, through the cha- local Chamber of Commerce with over 100 business people. There's also a, a unique celebration of 50 years of um, production of Philadelphia cream cheese at the extraordinary plant uh, there in Mount Gambia. Um, obviously, I want to check into the hospital and make sure progress is being made on on our dramatic upgrade of, of that facility. So uh, just the opportunity to be able to engage and hear from locals, though, is also important and answer any questions that people might have about uh, the local plebiscite that's happening around council amalgamation at the moment. Now, Peter, why did you decide to talk about a, a, a amalgamation of the Mount Gambia and Grant Council areas? Well, it's a good. I'm, I'm really glad you asked that, Ewan, because um, all we're doing here is asking residents in the Grant District Council and Mount Gambia Council about whether or not they want to explore amalgamation. It's a really, really important difference to actually asking people whether or not they want to amalgamate. So we're asking people, do they want to explore it? Um, That is to say, do they want to have a community consultation and a separate productivity commission inquiry on it? Now, if people say no, then forevermore, I can't imagine this issue coming up. Um, But the fact is that every single time um, that I've uh, been in the Mount or around that, 
Uh, this issue does get raised uh, by business leaders, by community groups, sporting clubs, um, individual ratepayers. Obviously, anyone who's familiar with the boundaries knows that there's nothing quite like it anywhere else in the state, maybe not in the country. It's a very unusual arrangement to have you know, a council and donating another, in effect. Um, and people kept asking, you know, is this the most efficient way of doing things? And I think that's a, a legitimate question, but bef but I'm not interested in, in forcing this upon anyone. Um, we've got enough to deliver for the local community outside of this. We've got a $100 million program committed to the limestone coast. So that's our focus, not my government's focus. But um, having been on the uh, on the ground at our country cabinet a few months ago, this issue kept getting raised. And I said, well, let's let's give people the chance to have a say. And um, simply asking people, do you want to have a community consultation? So this is the biggest community consultation in the history of the Southeast on whether or not we have a community consultation. <laughs> so, um, and it'll be, it'll be up to locals to decide if they, if they want the community consultation, they can vote yes. But if no one's interested in, in looking at the issue and don't even want a consultation, then obviously there's the option to vote no as well. Peter, I don't want to muddy the issues at all, but I am amazed that we haven't amalgamated all seven councils in the Limestone Coast and made it a council for the region. Well, this, this comes up a lot, and a few people asked, have asked me since, well, why don't you make it more broader? And I, my, my view is that council amalgamations are always um, a difficult ask, and I don't think they should be forced upon people. So let's see where, where these two sit and, and ask people the question and, and what comes out of it. Now, look, if there's something successful that comes out of it, then maybe in the future we can ask other communities about whether or not they want to have their own exploration. But in my assessment, it only works if it, um, in practice, if it happens from the bottom up. So step, step one would be ask the community, do you want to explore it? And if they do want to explore it, then we'll have a sweeping community consultation across, across both council areas. And then separately and concurrently, um, my government will fund the Productivity Commission to do an examination around what the costs are and what the potential benefits are. Um, but look, if we don't ever want to do that, then then that's fine too, because like I said, um, we've got other priorities that we're committed to in the area. But I'll, I'm serious about the South East Ewan. Um, my government wants to realise all of the potential that it's got, and that's why we're putting options on the table and, and working with the community and letting them decide. Listener.